The following podcast is a glimpse into the life of Ecclesia Houston. We pray it is a blessing as you seek to follow Jesus, the liberating King, and live in his kingdom here on earth as it is in heaven. Axel and Edania, Michelle brought me a beautiful gift and a sign as you were praying, so thank you to them and to so many. Um, and I'm going to talk to you about it today, actually, that I get to represent you and the many gifts that we get to give, and I often receive so much blessing in return uh, for my opportunity to do that. Um, I am also thrilled to see so many of you wearing Astros gear today, and that gives me great joy. Um, as you uh, probably already know, every time we have a series, I quickly enter into a wager with a pastor from that city uh, because I believe in my team. And so uh, in light of my most recent rager, uh, wager with my friend Tim Lucas, who pastors a church in the greater New York City area, I wanted to share this with you. Hey guys, Pastor Tim Lucas here from Liquid Church right outside of New York City. Huge Yankees fan and I want to send out hearty congratulations to the good people of Ecclesia Houston. I had a wager with my good friend, Pastor Chris C. And uh, I think we saw after the Yankees-Houston heavyweight fight, we finally revealed who the bigger man is. And I do want to say congratulations to you. Had a little wager with Pastor Chris. Whoever lost would have to wear the other jersey. So I'm repping Houston. And uh, I couldn't bring myself to get an Altuve jersey. So I went old school a little Bagwell because he was vintage from when, uh, when I was, uh, was growing up. So anyway, congratulations to you guys. It was a heck of a fight, and uh, we did wager that the losing pastor has to sing either New York, New York, or the stars at night are big and bright, deep in the heart of Texas. Congratulations, guys. Good luck with the Nationals. Um, you guys are an amazing team. The Apex Predator, you are in your prime. But I can't wait to see you next year in the ALCS when Garrett Cole will be pitching for the Yanks. <laughs> Love you guys. Oh, it hurts because it might be true. That's why it, that's why it hurts. Uh, as you can imagine, I already have a wager with my dear friend Mark Batterson at National Community Church. Uh, the good news on both of our teams, we have some amazing players uh, for the Nationals and the Astros that come from Venezuela. And we're gonna be working on some projects together. Actually, I'll be in Venezuela this next week after the World Series. And our churches will be working together to feed people. We're gonna give credit uh, to the players from the winning team when we're there. But, we, uh, but either way, we're getting to do it together, uh, which will be beautiful. I, I, I don't wanna take all the credit, but I did help pray us through game three. I flew to DC and uh, and made it in for that game. And gratefully, we've got some momentum on our side now. Um, I, I had uh, one unique experience. Many of you know, this is my friend Josh Dubois, uh, who works there in DC. Uh, I would tell you in general, the DC fans uh, were much kinder than the New York City fans. Uh, I did have uh, a few moments. There were tons of Ecclesians in the ballpark too. So I literally, um, I was singing Jose, Jose, Jose so loud that people were like, I think that's my pastor. Um, <laughs> So I had like nine Ecclesians come take a photo with me at the ballpark because they're like, I can hear you from across the stadium. 
Um, but we, uh, we got the job done. They were generally much kinder. I did, I was riding around on one of those little scooters in DC, uh, wearing my Nolan Ryan rainbow jersey. And apparently somebody was not nearly as friendly and they came up, literally got right up behind me on that scooter, laid on the horn and then offered a number of unfriendly hand gestures to me. Um, the sad part for them is they were apparently on duty working for Maggiano's as a driver and the phone number to Maggiano's is on the back of that truck. <laughs> I quickly placed a phone call to the manager at Maggiano's, and when I shared with him that either I could share my experience on Twitter or he could feed a lot of friends uh, at Maggiano's, he preferred the latter. So if you wanna go to DC with me, we will all eat for free very soon. So, um, so I don't know what that guy was thinking, but... Um, but it was part of the bad mojo that got them to this place. Uh, on another occasion, I'll give you a bunch of the reasons of why we love baseball, not just because it brings our city together, um, but because it's a place for us that we go and spend time together. Um, so throughout the season, our homeless brothers and sisters, our small groups, we go. I learned early on as a pastor, um, and guys, don't be offended by this because it's the truth, um, that women are just better at relationships and uh, sitting and talking than many of us are. In fact, uh, early in my ministry, I would have guys set up appointments with me. They'd, set up, they'd go to all the trouble to set up an appointment. They would come sit down in my office. Then they would sit in front of me and they would clam up and they wouldn't talk about whatever it was they wanted to talk about um, because something about sitting and looking me in the eye was maybe too much for them. And uh, so I started making those appointments at this restaurant where we could play pool. And I learned that if they had a pool stick in their hand they didn't have to look me in the eye, they would tell me anything. And they'd confess their deepest, darkest sins. And, uh, and for men, it just helps. And the ballpark is a similar place. We're all watching people run around the bases, but we sit for two and a half hours and we kind of open our hearts to each other. And uh, it's one of the many reasons that we love baseball. There's also a great story you'll hear at the open door uh, gathering about how our church came to existence. And the short version is, uh, I was hired uh, by a group in Atlanta to consult and help them start uh, a new church in a really great area of urban Atlanta. Um, they had a lot of resources. I was working on the project for six months. As we were getting to the place that they were ready to really um, move forward, they came to me and said, hey, Chris, we really think you're supposed to be the pastor of this church in Atlanta. I was pastoring a church that I started in Waco at the time. And I instantly, my reflex to them was, I hate the Braves, I can't do that job. And, uh, and then it occurred to me, I'm a Houstonian, I'm an Astros fan, I need to start a church in Houston. And uh, Ecclesia was born in that moment that I realized how much I hated the Braves. And so um, it truly was. And, uh, and in some ways today, that's part of what I wanna talk to you about. I'm gonna talk to you about um, the uniqueness in some ways of my vocation, but how um, my particular vocation and my calling and your calling sometimes gets blurred and a bit confused. There are certain things about the job that I do as a pastor that I just gotta tell you, I love. Uh, I love getting to represent you in places like Venezuela uh, over the next week and get to feed people and you don't even know it, but our church together with the offerings that we bring together, we're feeding thousands of people there every month. 
Um, we're, we're providing jobs for people that wouldn't have them and medical care. There's just so many opportunities that we have to serve. We're building up a local church in a place of great need. Um, last week, we had our friends in from Living Water International in India, and I got to sit with the directors of their, their country as they described what's happening at the literally Ecclesia, hundreds of water wells you've drilled just on that continent. And what happens in India is that a lot of people drill water wells, but when Muslims drill a water well, it's only for Muslims. And when Hindus drill a water well, it's only for Hindus. And you know what happens when Christians drill a water well? It's for everybody, right? And it, it just, the culture doesn't understand it. They think, who are these people that love everyone? And you get to do that, and I feel so blessed to stand in that place. I feel blessed when I get to do what I did last weekend, and I, I had the difficult but beautiful task of honoring and celebrating the life of one of my dear friends, a beloved friend of Ecclesia and longtime Ecclesian, Joe Bullard. And we celebrated his life well. I got to gather his kids because everything we do at Ecclesia, we get to ask, like, is that the way to do it? And so we, we do children's sermons often at, at funerals at Ecclesia, and we pulled all of his grandkids and other kids together, and I got to explain to them what death is, right? Because a lot of adults are like, I don't know how to explain it to them. And I got to sit down and explain to them, hey, your Papa Joe, it, what matters about him is his soul, and his soul's still alive. His soul is with Jesus. It's just his body that broke his body broke just like my iPhone from a few weeks ago. It just broke. It doesn't work anymore. Can you believe how expensive they are when you have to replace them, right? And they, but, but Joe still exists, and I got to watch these kids with tears coming down their face find great joy in the fact that their Papa Joe still is. He's just not in his body, right? There are so many moments. I get to lead many of you on trips uh, to the Holy Land. Last year, I did three. I'm cutting it back to one, maybe two this year. Um, if you want to join us on it, we'll show you the slide, February 6th through the 15th, and we get to walk in the footsteps of Jesus. One of my favorite things I get to do uh, in, my, um, in my job, uh, I, get to, I get a front row seat to grief in people's lives. Um, and grief is not, um, grief is beautiful in that no one's faking it when you're grieving. You're honest about where you are. And in that way, when there's no pretense, it's a beautiful, beautiful thing. But I'll tell you what I don't like about it is that people have misunderstood that to be a pastor means you're a professional Christian. This is what you need to know. There's just one class of Christians, Christians, that's it. In fact, some of the things that you've been taught actually aren't true. I grew up in a world that taught me that there is this world of clergy and this world of laity. And these regular people that sit in pews are different than the people that get up and preach in front of those things. And what you need to know is that we may have different jobs, but our calling is the same. And today we're gonna look at this historic Christian truth and tenet of what's called the priesthood of all believers that every believer is a priest. We're all the same. God speaks to all of us. We may have different gifts and we may have different vocations, but God speaks to each and every one of us. And I just wanna tell you as clearly as I can today, in fact, I'm gonna promise you as best of my ability, I've learned the shorter my sermon, the better you listen to me sometime. I didn't know much about preaching growing up. My dad was a pastor, but we'd always give him the same advice. We'd just tell him, Dad, there's no such thing as a bad short sermon. Like, it doesn't exist, right? So, I'm, but I'm just telling you, um, if, you'll, if you'll dial in with me, I believe that this simple truth, if you'll attach to it, it's so world-changing. It's like when people figured out the world wasn't flat. 
They just literally came to this place. They go, I see everything through different eyes now. When you begin to understand the place that we play in God's economy and God's kingdom. And so today I want to invite you to consider that. We're going to look at some simple truths that come often from the Reformation. Uh, Martin Luther was one of the first to articulate in a time that there was real brokenness in the church, corruption among the priesthood. Martin Luther, who um, just looks like an old German dude, um, he was articulating that every believer was a priest and there was no special dispensation for the clergy or the priesthood. In fact, Luther was, uh, was well known for saying um, that the vocation of being a priest and the vocation of milking a cow were equally sacred. Now, that doesn't carry as much weight for us today because I'm pretty sure that machines milk cows today. But what I want you to hear is that your vocation, the work that you do, is equally sacred to the work that I do. And if together we'll figure this out, I'm telling you, we will be a different church, we'll be a different city. The world will be a radically different place. Hebrews chapter 10, he says, so my friends, Jesus, by his blood gives us courage to enter the most holy place. He has created for us a, a new and a living way through the curtain. You know what he's talking about here, right? This curtain that protected the Holy of Holies, this place that the priest would only enter once a year. And you had to be a priest. In the Old Testament before Jesus, there was one particular group of priests. Not everyone was a priest. But the writer of Hebrews is informing us that through Christ now, that Christ has torn that curtain, there is no longer this Holy of Holies where God dwells, but now God dwells where? You remember? This would be a really important thing to remember. And us, right? And each and every one of us that we all become the temple. He says that is through his flesh. Since we have a great high priest who presides over the house of God, let us draw near with true hearts full of faith, with hearts rents clean of any evil conscience, and with bodies cleansed with pure water. The writer of Hebrews says we no longer wait for someone else to intercede for us, that God will speak to us and through us. And that is a beautiful and a unique gift. So today we're going to look at Luther. We're going to look at some teachings from a guy named John Calvin, particularly about how this fleshes out. He was a hipster before anybody knew there was a hipster. Um, and what you'll know about John Calvin, I actually encourage you to read his work. He wrote a great book, his primary work called The Institutes. Um, many of you may know and you hear of people that are Calvinists, I'm quite sure. Uh, that John Calvin would not be accepted as a Calvinist today. You read his works and it comes across very differently than what you might have thought uh, of him. Writes beautifully on spirituality. So this is what I want to ask you to do. As we enter into this discussion, would you think with me about our current culture? Um, my um, mentor in terms of missions and culture and understanding the gospel is a man named Leslie Newbigin. He was a British man. Uh, born in Birmingham, England. He talks about the way that the gospel lives in the culture in this way. This is the metaphor he uses. He says, if you would think of the gospel, which is the good news, and the good news is for whom? All people, right? If it's good news, it has to be good news for everyone, not just for you or for me. He says, if you think of the gospel as a diamond and the world, he said, is like a dunghill. That's a very polite British way of speaking. 
about what you know that is, right? And uh, I'll stick with his polite way of referencing. He says, what we do is we spend our lives rolling the diamond down the dunghill. And as the diamond engages the dung, what happens is that often the diamond gets a lot of dung on it. So he said, what we have to do is pick it up, look at it, and try to chip off the dung to preserve the diamond. So for instance, when we do work in different cultures, uh, with living water, we get to drill water wells along the Amazon, very tribal people, right? When, when we get to introduce them to Christianity, oftentimes we have to say at some point, like, hey, I know you've been cannibals, but like it doesn't work to be a Christian cannibal. Like at some point, we have a view of humanity that's different than that. And so what you're doing is leaving behind some of your old ways because that part of your culture won't really fit with Christianity. So this is what I'd like you to do. Many of ours are equally disturbing, but not as grotesque, right? What are the things that you can think of in our culture that become like dung on the diamond? There are things in our culture that um, reshape our understanding of the gospel in ways that may not be healthy. And I've got time because I've got coffee and I could actually use some. So what, what were the things you could think of? Just say them aloud. Lying, cheating, and stealing, right? We, we live in a world where literally truth in our culture has almost evaporated. I mean, in, in our culture, any under, now what you need to know is that truth is not only spoken or written, truth is embodied. Jesus said, I am the truth. But you need to know there is a sense of truth. We've moved into a culture that truth has become so relative that we don't even recognize lying, cheating, and stealing because everything becomes so fluid, right? It's part of our culture. We gotta be aware of, we gotta chip it off the diamond. What else? Politics, Politics, right? We live in a world where we think our worldview is the right worldview. Now, if you think that Jesus is sitting there fired up about the things on your news channel, right? Then you've missed something. Because I can tell you, the things he was talking about, I don't hear reflected on any of them, right? And so what we have to do is be a people that say, hey, it's not our politics, but it's Jesus' politics. And I'm telling you, his, he does have one, but it's of a different kind of kingdom he was creating, and it has very little to do with our understanding. What else? This sense of everything's okay. This sense of there is no right and wrong fits again with the relativism that we were talking about. What else? Social media, right? That we live in a culture. This, this would be, do you, Proverbs tells us, right? Um, that a man with true friends is rich. Facebook says I have 5,000 friends. <laughs> How many friends do you think I really have? Yeah. If you got five friends, you're rich. If you got five people you can call at 2 a.m., They'll actually pick up the phone. You're rich. What do you think happens when we try to invest in 5,000 people instead of five people, right? It doesn't go well for us. So I got a lot of people that know that I ate Mexican food while I watched the Astros last night, right? But that doesn't make them my friend. I didn't actually post that. I should have. It was really good. It was really good. You should have seen it. It was a good margarita. Let me give you a few, just a few more, right? Consumerism. Let me give you two, right? We live in a world that's so consumed by consumerism that we think everything is a commercial exchange. In fact, I could ask most of you, like, 
what do you believe in most? And you'd give me the Jesus-y answer. But the truth is, if you have a really bad day, I've watched you, I've watched me. What do you do when you have a really bad day, mostly? You go buy something, right? You have a breakup, you go to Target. Because <laughs> buying something, buying anything makes you feel better, right? New pants, new dress. The bigger it is, the longer it lasts, but ultimately that thing won't satisfy you, right? We live in a world that's hyper-individualized, right? You need to know the way that you see yourself as a unique individual is not necessarily the way the Bible talks about it. In fact, I, I really believe one of the reasons that Christianity is flourishing in China is because Chinese people see themselves not as this hyper-individual, but as a part of a greater whole. They see themselves as a part of a big family. And I think that worldview is more conducive to a true understanding of Christianity. We live in a world that is so engaged in consumerism that we turn people into celebrities. Now, I gotta tell you, I don't know if you were as bothered by it as I was, but anybody read some of the comments that Yankees fans were making to Astros players on the field? This, they, were, they were talking about their mothers and their children, right? And, and if, if you, you're surprised by it, I wonder why. Have you noticed the tabloids that you read as you try to buy milk and bread? Did you know it's a billion dollar industry? Can you believe it's a billion dollar industry of things that you and I both know aren't true, but that people are so consumed with tearing other people down that they'll buy it anyway? I gotta tell you, I look at the way people talk to each other online and it's not as though they are human beings. We've lost a regard for the truth. So in light of all of those things and the brokenness of our understanding, I want to invite you to contemplate today the simple teaching of Scripture that says to you and I that you're a priest, that I'm a priest, that we have different gifts and vocations, but they're all used towards the greater good. We're going to look first at 1 Peter chapter 2. And there's a part of me, Ecclesia, that wanted to just take the first verse of this teaching and just land on it as our whole sermon. Um, I just ask you to store it away for later. This is the first thing Peter says in chapter two. He says this, he says, hey, Ecclesia, how about you get rid of hatefulness, deception, insincerity, jealousy, and slander? I'm just telling you, Ecclesia, if we all started with that this week, hatefulness, deception, insincerity, jealousy, and slander, and we got rid of those in our lives, things would change radically. Now, if you're here and you're going, I don't really have a problem with hatefulness, deception, insincerity, jealousy, or slander, you're the least self-aware person in the room. <laughs> you need to know, right? Because we all do. Right? I... It's so painful to be a part over recent weeks and months. We've had so many people experience deep and profound loss. We've had people that have lost children. People lost their spouse, lost their parent. It's painful, but I gotta tell you, the authenticity, there is no insincerity in those moments. As you sit with people who literally have snot rolling down their face as they cry and they don't need to wipe it and they don't care. They don't care what they look like. They don't care what you think because they're in grief and they're hurting. And there is something that is beautiful about that authentic authenticity and sincerity. 
When you hit a place that you hit bottom and you go, I don't, I don't need to impress anybody. This is where I find myself. I'm telling you, all week, just put this one aside, maybe write it on a card next to your bed. I want to get rid of hatefulness, deception, insincerity, jealousy, and slander. And then he says this, he says, would you be like newborn babies? Crying out for spiritual milk that will help you grow into salvation? Typically, we have so many babies in the room, but they're being really quiet right now. But the great thing about babies, and you hear them in our services, and if you're new to Ecclesia and you're like, why are there so many babies making noise? It's because we like them more than we like you. Um, <laughs> we think they're amazing. And what they do is really great. What do babies do when they want something? They let you know what they want. What do they want most of the time? Milk, right? Sometimes they need sleep. Sometimes they need a diaper change. But they want milk. And he says, literally, as a Christian, what if you were so obsessed, like a baby is for milk, right? When you're a baby, you, there's nothing else in the world that matters, right? Mom gives me milk, I'm okay. What if we were obsessed with spiritual nutrition? We just said, the only thing I want is to grow in my faith. I want spiritual nutrition. I want to learn more. I want to pray more. I want to grow in my faith. He says, if you would obsess over that, Focus on that. If you've tasted and found the Lord to be good, then come to him. He's the living stone who is rejected by people but accepted by God as chosen and precious. Then he says, like living stones, let yourselves be assembled into a spiritual house. A holy order of, read it together with me, who offer up spiritual sacrifices that will be acceptable to God through Jesus the anointed. Now, who was Peter writing to here? Was he writing to a group of pastors? No, he was writing to the church, the ecclesia. Ecclesia means the church, the called out ones, the priests. We're a part of, he says, this royal order, this holy order of priests who give sacrifices. Now, in the Old Testament, they gave animal sacrifices. In Romans, Paul explains to us that we now give spiritual sacrifices. What does that mean? He says, when we offer up our lives in worship to God, it becomes a sacrifice, like a holy aroma to God. And when we live out the life that God's called us, it becomes a beautiful gift to God on the altar of our lives. And we're all priests. For it says in the words of the prophet Isaiah, see here, I'm laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever depends upon him will never be disgraced. To you who believe and depend on him, he is precious. Do you hear that? When you, when you believe, you put your faith and you depend on God, he is precious to you. To you who don't, remember the words of the psalmist, the stone that the builders rejected has been laid as the cornerstone, the very stone that holds together the entire foundation. He says, you may not believe, but it is so. And of Isaiah, a stone that blocks their way, a rock that trips them. They stumble because they don't follow the word of God as they were destined to do. But you, Ecclesia, are a chosen people, set aside to be a, read it with me, royal order of priests, a holy nation, God's own. Do you hear it, Ecclesia? You're a priest. He says, what, then what do you do when you're a priest? So that you may proclaim the wondrous acts of the one who called you out of inky darkness into shimmering light. Whoever you are, wherever you come from, God has called you out of darkness and into light. And now your job is to live in that light and to proclaim the goodness of the God that brought you from darkness to light. 
Once you were not a people, he says, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received it. Beloved, remember, you don't belong in this world. You were resident aliens living in exile. Now again, he uses this language of immigrants coming through the land. He says, this world is not the world you were made for. If you wanna be satisfied by the things of this world, it won't satisfy you. Why? Because it's not your home. If you think a certain amount of money in your account is gonna satisfy you, you know what you're gonna find out? It won't. If you think the dream house is gonna satisfy you, guess what, it won't. One of my dearest friends built the house that was the house, right? Anybody have a friend that built the house? And it was like, this was it. Everything was designed perfectly for them. About 12,000 feet, it was beautiful. You know what happened when he moved in? Most depressed he's ever been. You know why? Because he realized it wasn't going to make him happy. Everything was right. I walked through with him, it's like, this is exactly like you wanted, it's exactly what you wanted. But you thought it was gonna bring you a happiness that it's not able to actually give you. Why? because we don't belong here. Now, I hope you get some joy from it. If you set up the TV the right way with some speakers that we can watch the Astros game, invite me over, right? If you add a margarita machine to the mix, I'd love to be there, right? It would be really joyful and satisfying. It just won't ultimately satisfy. It may intrigue you. It may entertain us. What's Peter saying? But it's not the same. It won't be the thing that sustains you. Why? Because you're not made for this world. You're resident aliens and you're passing through. So resist those desires of the flesh that battle against the soul. Then he says, live honorably. It's a great word. Live with honor. So that among the outsiders, so that even when some may be inclined to call you criminals, when they see your good works, they might give glory to God when he returns in judgment. I believe this at the core of who I am, Ecclesia, that if we see our role as priests, if we lean in and say, whatever it is that you do, you do unto the Lord, and we all do it with that same level of care and commitment, that the, the amount of good works that happen that overflow from our church will be so substantial that the world will say, what is happening there? I got a few things I want to share with you. John Calvin believed that we would manifest um, this priesthood in three particular ways. I want to share those with you, and then I want to invite you into three things that I think you can do. John Calvin believed that there were these threefold offices of Christ as prophet, priest, and king. And his understanding, and I believe it to be true, is that we live into our lives as Christians by manifesting those three offices. So if your job is to manifest those three offices, it might be good to know them and to know what they mean. So let me give you a quick summary of each of them. The first, he says, is the office of a prophet. Now, this is one that we often misunderstand. In fact, when people use the word prophet, they often think of someone who is Telling the future, right, is often the thing that comes up. You're seeing into the future. Uh, and prophets can see some things clearly, but it's not about uh, future telling at all. In fact, the Old Testament uh, professor and writer and theologian, Walter Brueggemann, explains it beautifully. He says, this is what a prophet does. There may be only one thing I would say worth writing down today. If you want to get this, remember this one, because it will help you. This is what a prophet does. A prophet paints the picture of the world as it is, 
and simultaneously paints the picture of the world as it should be. So imagine this, imagine your workplace right now. Do you have a clear vision of what it currently is? What's good, what's not so good? What's broken, what's unjust? Then would you overlay that with a vision of what God would have it to be? And this is what happens. In the tension between those two, a Christian is called to action. So we start moving towards the things we have to do to bring it to the place that it is what God would have it to be. We see a neighborhood in our city that's broken where, where kids don't have adequate supervision, where kids are going to bed hungry. We see a neighborhood like that. We see it as it is and we get a vision for what it should be. And in the tension between the two, we say, what does it look like to work together to see something beautiful take place here? What would it look like to mentor? What would it look like to bring food in? What would it look like to work with schools in a way that manifests justice and hope and peace and love in those neighborhoods? We look at our own family systems and where they're broken and we say, this is what's broken. I see it for what it is, but I see it for what it can be. Are you guys caffeinated enough to, to grasp what I'm saying in, in this? Am I getting a few? And so it's in that we're all prophets. It's like we've been given these Christian lenses, these glasses to look through that give us the ability to see both. And when we see both, we start to act and move towards bringing it to this place that it is what God would have it to be. It works everywhere. Secondly, we're all priests. Calvin would say, hey, those priests have a particular vocation as a priest, but here's the good news. Jesus speaks to you. He speaks directly to you. In Ephesians 3, this is what Paul had to say. He said his, his faithfulness to God has made it possible for us to have the courage we need and the ability to approach the Father confidently. What's he saying? He's saying God talks to you just like he talks to me, no different. Now, I, I may spend more time prepping for sermons because I got to get up and speak for him from time to time. But God speaks to you just the same. And you know what? Your job is to open your ears and listen, to read the scriptures and to say, God, what is it that you want to say to me? Our job together is to lean in with one another and remind other brothers and sisters that we're forgiven of our sins. We don't have to go through a priest. It would be awful if you had to go through me to experience forgiveness. It would be awful if you had to go through me to hear from God. There'd be a big log jam. And what would happen is when you have to rely on other broken people, things would get messed up. Now, what you do need to do is as you read the scriptures and you hear God speak to you, you ought to confirm that with some other believers that are reading the scripture with you. Because you know what's going to happen? Sometimes you're going to read the Bible and you're going to come up with some really weird things that weren't exactly what it was supposed to be, okay? You won't read it perfectly, we had this kid I love to talk about. He was a great kid. He was really enthusiastic. And he just started reading the Bible a lot, which would never be bad, right? But he'd read the Bible and he'd come up with really odd ideas about it, right? So like he was reading through the Exodus. And he told me, you know, this passage really spoke to me. I'm like, which one was it? It was Moses and the burning bush. I'm like, what does it mean? He said, God wants me to smoke more weed. So, no, that's not, that is not what God's saying. It's not. But he's like, it's Moses and the bush is burning. Right? No, no, that's not, that is not what God is saying to you, right? So you may want to articulate what you're hearing so that others can go, wait, actually, if we look together, we'd find that's not exactly it. But hear this, 
Sometimes God may speak something through you that somebody else desperately needs to hear. And so what we have to do is have our ears open, ready to listen. You're a prophet, you're a priest, and then Jesus carried this office of king. So what does that mean for you? It means you're royalty, you're sons and daughters of the king. And the king has authority. This is what happens when you carry the office of Christ's kingship in people's lives. You get to speak words over them that, that literally breathe power into them. I say this to you from time to time, but I'm telling you, Ecclesia, if you'll pause and say, God, what kind words, what generous words, what affirming and life-giving words could I speak over people? God will speak to you about how you're to do that. And I wanna encourage you to do this. Just take time with your friends, with coworkers, to say those things, to say, hey, Bob. And if you got that kind of friendship, you could put your hand on their hand and just go, hey, you're a good friend. Say, Sharon, Sharon, you are a loving and sacrificial mother. I've watched you make sacrifices, and I want to tell you, you are, your kids are blessed to have you as a mother. And if you'll speak slowly and kindly, let me tell you, everyone is starving for words like that. I don't know anybody that's like, you know what, I've had so much encouragement. I'm so, I'm so sick of people encouraging me, <laughs> speaking kind. I'm fed up with it. I don't want to hear it anymore, right? You, anybody know somebody like that? Anybody know that somebody that's like, if somebody would just acknowledge that I'm trying my best, if somebody would just acknowledge that, that I have a love for others, I'm trying, I'm trying to live into it. If they just would spoke, speak some words of kindness over me, it might be the thing that would help me get through another day or another week. Why do you think people are starving for it? I, I think one of the reasons is they think that the professional Christians like me are supposed to be the ones doing it, and we've forgotten that we're all priests. You carry that mantle, prophet, priest, and king. So what are we supposed to do? I promise you this would be a short sermon and now I'm about to be a liar. Let me give you three things. Here's the first, accept your ordination. Just accept your, I've been ordained, you are also ordained. Your baptism is an ordination. We're gonna celebrate baptism today. If you haven't been baptized, I wanna encourage you to do that. You can literally come up today and just talk to our brothers here and sisters here and say, hey, I, I need to be baptized. It's one of the, Jesus didn't ask us to do a lot, but he did say really clearly to be baptized. He said, remember me. Um, and we take communion. These are two of the, the rituals that we go through because Jesus asked us to do it. You were ordained, you're a priest. Would you accept it? And then as you accept it, this is what I wanna invite you to do. Would you baptize your vocation? Whatever it is that you do, I want you to see that you do it as a priest. I'd love to give you a few examples. Just somebody in the room, anybody, um, what it is that you do, your vocation. Yeah. Money manager. So you were a priest who's been gifted and called vocationally to manage people's money, right? But you do it as a priest. Somebody else. Nurse. Carol's a nurse, right? So, and everybody in the medical field, you're a priest who works as doctors, nurses, medical techs, you work towards people's physical healing, but you do it as a priest, as a representative of Christ. At least one more. Pastor. 
Somebody has a job, right? An artist. So you're a priest. You're a priest who has particular gifts in portraying beauty and hope to people through art, right? But you do it as a priest. Say it again. Ballroom dance teacher. Everybody needs to sign up for lessons. You're a priest who brings people together through movement and dance, right? That's a gift, but you're a priest. I hope we've done enough that you can hear it for yourself, whatever it is that you do. You're a priest who has a particular vocation. Some of you teach what could be more sacred. But this is what you need to know, whatever it is that you do. Some of you think, well, I just sell things. Will you come in contact with people I would never come in contact with? And together, when we all see our roles as priests, we begin to realize God's up to something really beautiful and we all have these touch points that nobody else has and we're all leading the church in that way. I wanna invite you to baptize your vocation. What you do is sacred. Then lastly, I wanna give you some clear action items and there's a hundred I could give you here, but this is what I want you to do. Would you reimagine your schedule your finances and your priorities in light of what it means for you to be a priest. Here's a good place to start. If you're a priest and you don't ever talk to God, being a priest is acknowledging that God talks to you, right? If you're a priest but you don't ever take time to talk to God, it's gonna be really hard to be a good priest. You you gotta read the scriptures, you gotta set aside time to pray, you gotta put away your devices and other things and go, hey God, I'm listening, what is it you would like to say to me today? You gotta look at your schedule and say, if I'm a priest, who are the people I'm called to serve? A lot of those will be in your vocation, but they won't all be. So I wanna give you two that I wanna ask you to think about because we need a lot of people to do these two things and, um, and they're an area of great need. Here's the first. One of the best things you can do as a priest is encounter people that are in a place of real need. So one of the best ways we've been able to find to do that, one of the most life-changing opportunities I've had in all of my ministry is to minister to people who are incarcerated. Something happens when you step into a prison and you meet somebody that you think you're supposed to be scared of and you find that they're filled with their own fears and struggles and limitations and that you're gifted to help them. And we have a big weekend coming up in January. We gotta sign people up and get them trained now. January 24th through 26th to do one of our Jubilee weekends. You spend a whole weekend. We particularly need men uh, for this event, but we need women that will serve as well. We have other weekends that serve in women's prisons. Uh, There are other uh, one-day and two-day opportunities. Our friend Bob Lukafar is gonna be at the info table. I would love for, I'm telling you, this will change your life to step in and love on a person who's incarcerated and help them as a prophet to see the world and who they are as it should be, and call them into it. Here's the second one. Um, We have a beautiful opportunity at Ecclesia I've shared with you about a month ago uh, to bring foster kids here. Uh, These are kids that have been separated from their families at the border. Uh, They have often been in detention areas. They have been uh, in facilities, and we believe that kids belong in families. Amen, anybody agree with that? Kids belong in families. We all in agreement? Let's find a way for kids to be with families. And so these kids are from two to 12, 
and uh, we need families that are willing to foster. Our friend Juan is here. Juan, would you stand up? He's got a pink shirt on so you can't miss him. And Juan is the director of this program. It'll be housed here at Ecclesia. The kids will spend five days a week here at Ecclesia. And we need foster families from the church that say, I'll take those kids, love those kids, bring them here to be cared for and loved and encouraged. It helps if you have some Spanish. It helps if you at least own Rosetta Stone, um, something. You got an iPhone, you can figure something out. But what we really want are some families that just say, hey, I'm willing to do that. I'm willing to love a kid. And I believe that whether it's a two-year-old or a 12-year-old, if they get two or three months of just unconditional love of Christ from a family, that it has the power to radically change their life forever. And so I want to invite you to consider those two things. There are hundreds of other opportunities to fulfill your vocation as a priest. You can serve in our children's ministry. You can mentor a kid with big brothers and big sisters. They're just on the other side of the railroad tracks. Walk in there one day and just go, I'm here, how can I help? There are so many opportunities to see that you have unique gifts and if you share them, the world will be a better place. Will you give me a moment to pray for you? I'm gonna bless our communion elements. And then I wanna encourage you not to leave at communion because we've got five peop- three people we're baptizing in this service. And if you are a Christian, but you haven't accepted your ordination through baptism, we'd invite you to come. We'll baptize you in your clothes and we'll find some of my old clothes or something to put you in while you go home. So, um, Lord God, I thank you for my brothers and sisters. I thank you for the scriptural truth that each of them is a priest that we don't live in a time before Christ where we had to wait for someone else to speak on God's behalf, but that God actually comes to dwell inside of us and speak to each of us. And so, Lord, we pray that we would carry that mantle with all of its fullness, that we would use our unique gifts, that we baptize our vocation and see that the place that we worked, that we're called to represent you. And that, Lord, we would do it with the kind of determination and stamina of someone who believes that the creator of the universe dwells within us, speaks to us, knows us, and loves us. And so, Lord, help us to receive that truth today. God, we thank you for this bread, for this physical reminder that though you are the king of all kings, you came to dwell with us on earth to teach us and to conquer sin and death through your crucifixion and resurrection. God, we thank you for your blood that it was shed to end all sin and to lead us towards a world where your kingdom could reign in justice. Lord, we look at a world filled with injustice and we pray that we can embrace our role as prophets, that see the world that you made it to be and that work together towards restoring that world. May it be so. May it start with kids at the border that come to dwell in our church community and be loved. May it start with incarcerated men and women that feel as though they are worthless to society and make Christian brothers and sisters go speak words of life into them and over them and through them in a way that it would change them. May it happen in our families and in our neighborhoods. We pray all of this together and we pray it in your name. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit we pray, amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you would like more information, please visit our website at www.ecclesiahouston.org.